Waterbury. Welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, October 18th, and there is a lot going on. We are going to do three big things today. We start in Antarctica, and there's a trip coming up there, and uh, we're going to talk to Roger Hill, as in the Roger Hill, weather forecaster extraordinaire and trip leader who is leading a trip sponsored by WDEV, Milne Travel, and others to Antarctica. Uh, we're going to do that in the first half hour. Then, uh, 9.30, Emma Mulvaney-Stanick. She's running. She's a progressive. She's running for mayor of Burlington. She is the first announced candidate. Uh, we promise to have all the candidates on the show. So we'll talk to Emma Mulvaney-Stanick at 9.30, uh, live on the air. She's a state representative from the old north end of Burlington, and she announced her candidacy Monday. And lastly, we're going to return to Gaza and the Middle East and Israel, where the Israeli army is poised to invade and destroy uh, on a search-and-destroy mission the uh, Hamas attackers uh, that attacked ten, uh, Israel 10 days ago. As we all know, by now, Gaza is an area with two million people, most of them children, more than half of them children. And we are hoping to have guests on from Gaza. We've been working on that for the past week. The problem is phone service is very spotty there, and therefore uh, it's hard to get guests to call in. But we're we're still trying. Uh, If we cannot do that, what we'll do is I want to – I think it's important that we continue to face this issue. I got a lot of feedback from our show last Friday. So if we cannot get a guest from Gaza, what we're going to do is we're going to open the phones at 10 o'clock and take your questions. We'll explore Bernie Sanders' reaction to this, Becca Balance's reaction to this, uh, as well as many others. And we will take your calls, 244-1777. The email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We welcome your calls anytime, but especially in that 10 o'clock hour, because as I said before, this is a hard issue. It's complex. Uh, it's way beyond my pay grade, and I will make mistakes. But uh, I think we have an obligation to explore it. But first, Antarctica. And we are joined by the one and only Roger Hill. Welcome to the show. You know, the one and only, if you Google your name, you're not the one and only. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, first, I, I was in the, uh, when I went into the Army, I went to my uh, duty station, Schofield Barracks, Hawaii, and it turns out that there was a guy named Roger Hill that worked in a couple sections from Mars. I was in Metro section, meteorology, and he, he did something else. But So there's a lot of Roger Hills running around, so there you go. Yeah, but not... <laughs> Not in Worcester, Vermont. No, not in in, central Vermont. Right. It's crazy. Okay, so coming up soon, you're leading a trip to Antarctica. Uh, The the commercial side of the station promotes this, along with Scott Milne at Milne Travel, our friend. But uh, let's talk about what's really going to happen here. So what we're going to do is we're going to fly out of Burlington and then head over to Buenos, I, I think JFK, and then catch a bigger plane that then takes us to Buenos Aires. We're going to spend, I believe, a day and a night, and I haven't got it completely 100% down, but from there we uh, then board another, like a puddle jumper kind of smaller aircraft that lands in Ushuaia. And Ushuaia is at the, it's the southernmost port city at the very tip of Antarctica. Um, it's uh, Argentinian. 
Um, I believe Chile is, they have another uh, town that's nearby there. So there's always this dispute whether it's in Chilean waters or Argentinian waters. But uh, needless to say, it's uh, way down there. It's uh, south of Patagonia. And uh, it's incredible all by itself. And, of course, if you've ever done any history, Cape Horn is, uh, you know, the bottom end there. And all of the history of the ships and going across the Drake Passage and whatnot going around the Horn. So that's right there. Okay, why are you doing this? This sounds incredibly exciting. It's very exciting, and it, it, there's a lot of reasons. Well, I want to see it before it, it's changing, and, of course, it's a hard place to get to. Everybody that uh, does a lot of traveling has been to several different continents, but not very many people have been to Antarctica. And I was, I've been told in the past that uh, uh, Antarctica is like the number one uh, rated thing by people who have done the cruise to Antarctica. It's like it wipes out all the other things. But not everybody, you know, would be interested in going to Antarctica. The interesting thing is we're going into summer, and of course, Southern Hemisphere summer is opposite of that as the winter here. So, interestingly, the uh, the temperature levels and whatnot are similar to our winter about the same time in early December, what we find in Vermont. So, um, we'll be kind of experienced and adapted to that. However, in Buenos Aires, it's pretty pretty warm, so it could be like 90. So temperature-wise, it could be pretty warm, and then we have to, you know, get back into Vermont conditions, if you will. But it's summertime in uh, the southern tip of South America and Antarctica. So, um, okay, so you're apparently I'm being told that we have the trip director Jean Roche de Suzanne on the line. Uh, Jean Roche, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we yes. can, and it's it's great to have you. Thank you for uh, thank you for calling in. Uh, we've got Roger Hill, who is going to be on this trip with you. Uh, Jean Roche, can you tell us about the trip and uh, the details about what people can expect? Yes, for sure. So, hello, everybody. First of all, it's a real pleasure to be here with you on the radio and uh, have the opportunity to uh, share a little bit of uh, uh, what could be an experience to Antarctica. So, the trip, what does it look like? It's, uh, it's, a, it's a very large topic. Let's begin with uh, the itinerary. Maybe you probably know that uh, the ship received a guest in Ushuaia which is the southern tip of South America. And from there, we start the navigation all down the Drake Passage, which can be a little bit uh, rough sometimes, uh, the roughest seas in the world, <laughs> uh, up yep. to the peninsula. Uh, we normally, after a day and a half today, depending on the weather condition, reach the South Shetland, which is the first uh, uh, chain of islands that uh, mark the arrival toward uh, the peninsula. So this is uh, two days to go to the peninsula, another two days to go back. It's a real expedition. Uh, some uh, guests prefer to uh, fly to the peninsula, which is a possibility, uh, depending on the weather, of course. But I personally believe that uh, reaching Antarctica by sea is uh, making of the trip uh, somewhat of a pilgrimage, you know, just following the uh, trace of the the first explorer who have uh, discovered uh, the region not that long ago after all, and it's all part about it since uh, the first time man has discovered Antarctica. It's pretty much untouched. It's uh, pretty much the same place, the same pristine environment, in spite of uh, the many human activity that have taken place there during the 20th century. 
So the idea to have to, I wouldn't say suffer because the ship is very comfortable and the, the navigation condition to uh, cross the direct passage are quite uh, enjoyable, even if it's uh, a little rough, uh, is part, a uh, full part of uh, the expedition. It's also part of the expedition because during the crossing of the Drake, we are doing a lot of activities. It's not just being in your cabin. We have to prepare our arrival to Antarctica. Uh, hitting this pristine landscape means uh, getting ready. It means uh, being fit. We have for you on the ship the boots. We have for you parkas, and we're going to check all the equipment to make sure that none of us is going to bring some uh, dust, mud, seeds, any organic material that could result in the introduction of uh, foreign species to the uh, wide continent. And this is something particularly important this year. As you know, the avian flu has already reached Patagonia and uh, the probability the viruses arrived to the continent is very high. And we will need to take some extra precaution to make sure that our visit to Antarctica is not going to leave behind any deadly consequences for the wildlife and making sure that uh, we're going to follow the protocols to prevent the introduction of the avian flu is also one of our major concerns for this Antarctic season. Apart from uh, the preparation, we also have uh, a mandatory briefing uh, relating, retracing all the uh, regulation given by the Antarctic Treaty, reinforced by the IATO, which is the uh, association of uh, the tourist operators in Antarctica, plus, of course, some lectures and uh, some uh, sceneries. A lot of birds uh, can be enjoyed and uh, appreciated during the crossing of the Drake, uh, to name the biggest of them all, the wandering albatross, which uh, sometimes uh, pay a call and uh, follow the wake of our ship. And those are some uh, amazing sights that are already announcing uh, what is to be expected. So this is the first part of the trip. Then uh, for the second part, it's uh, the discovery of the peninsula itself. It's, uh, of course, uh, something which cannot be planned. It's always according to the weather condition. We like to say on the expedition world that the ice and the wind are the masters in Antarctica, and we cannot define in advance which site would be visited. We are depending completely on the condition, and uh, the expedition leader is the one responsible for defining, together with the captain, what would be the itinerary. We are ensuring to uh, cover an array and a diversity of uh, sites, for the delight and the knowledge of our guests. But of course, safety is the very first uh, concern and we will never begin an operation knowing that some winds may come, some conditions are not suitable. But the environment of Antarctica, as you probably know, is extremely hostile and uh, uh, do not allow uh, any mistake. And this is why safety is always our first concern. So, well, this is the itinerary. I give you back the uh, microphone maybe if you want <laughs> Thank to play some other question. Good. Yeah, I, but first we're going to take a quick break and then when we're going to come back we're going to continue our conversation about Antarctica. Apparently uh, this is uh, the WDEV Milne Travel sponsored trip to Antarctica. Your leader is going to be Roger Hill, our uh, in-house uh, meteorologist, weather forecaster extreme. You're going to give a lecture, right? 
I'm going to be doing uh, meteorological updates on the Drake Passage, uh, you know, even probably from Burlington on. So Great. keeping our folks uh, up to date on what's going on. and uh, Perfect. Yeah, and it's going to be really exciting. And as long as I have good Internet, I'm yeah. going to be able to pull that off without any trouble, and I think I will. Roger, um, you're going to be giving t- meteorological talks along the way. What do you discover when you arrive weather-wise? What's it like down there? What have you? Well, read? everything's upside down for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> but off so. the air, off the air. By the way, I, we're looking at a map here. You said to me, people should bone up on their Ernest Shackleton, which I have done. Oh yeah. But Shackleton was there. If you're going to Antarctica, you have got to check out the Weddell Sea, which is very close to where we're headed. Um, and, uh, you know, the South Shetland Islands and, and what, what took place in, in uh, Shackleton, which is uh, quite amazing. One of the greatest stories ever. Amazing. Yeah. And it is a very robustly uh, hostile environment. It's like almost the, the, what's worse than that maybe being on the moon. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Jean Roche, if you're still with us, can you tell us, uh, Roger says that the weather will change between Buenos Aires and arrival in, um, in Antarctica. Do the people traveling on the trip need to bring any special clothing, or do you provide that clothing? All right. So, yes, I'm still here. And uh, hello, Roger, by the way. Pleasure hello. Pleasure to have you uh, joining the trip. It's uh, it's nice to be there together on the radio and uh, start preparing the expedition. So, yeah, the preparedness of uh, the guests is actually something very important. It's quite clear that uh, uh, the weather from Buenos Aires down to the peninsula is going to change drastically. Like, it is the summer in the southern hemisphere. Buenos Aires is going to be very hot, hot and humid. It's not very enjoyable weather, I would say, in this time of the year. When you go down south and reach Ushuaia, you immediately feel the difference. It's much chillier, still enjoyable, though. Although you may find some snow sometimes, it may happen, and some windy condition that uh, may put a little bit of uh, uh, complication on the, the landing. It happens sometimes the plane has to go back included, and uh, uh, eventually after the boarding the ship and start navigating and going even further south, the weather is turning very cold. It is the summer in Antarctica, so it is not a very cold uh, weather condition. Just uh, uh, if you think about uh, winter in Washington, D.C. or something like this, uh, it's absolutely not the case. You can expect as an average a 32 Fahrenheit temperature. But the thing is that in Antarctica, if the wind starts to blow, then you refill the cold. And you can find yourself in a very uh, uncomfortable situation. It is important to be well prepared. So we provide you with some equipment. Basically, what we provide you with is a parka that will give you the warm layer and the waterproof layer. Those parkas are what you need to go outside. Personally, and by experience, I would recommend all our guests to prevent from getting overdressed. It's what happened normally. People think that the conditions in Antarctica are very cold and tend to have, you know, um, the, a warm and early year and overpolar um, on top of it, plus the, the parka. And they go outside, they start walking, and they sweat immediately, which is very uncomfortable. So with the parka, we provide you 
I would recommend just to have a simple under warm underlayer, you know, the Merinos kind of underlayer. This is just perfect. What we do not provide and what it is very important to take with you is a good pair of uh, trousers. I would recommend, and I use personally, some simple ski pants, not the very fancy one. As long as you have, once again, a warm layer and a waterproof layer, you're protected. That's all what you need. And this, with those parkas we're providing, with the trousers that are yours, and the boots we give you also, and those boots are the only pair of shoes you should take outside, actually, because they are the ones that are the most suitable for the activities we have and the landing condition we also find in Antarctica, you're pretty much done. Of course, uh, due to that, we recommend you to take a pair of gloves, a good hat, and I will emphasis on the need and the importance to have a good sunglasses. This, for me, would be uh, the piece of, of equipment you should not uh, go cheap, if I may say. Get a good pair of mountain sunglasses for protection, which is a full protection for the uh, glide and the, the reverberation of the sun on the snow. It's something very important. And with this, of course, with your camera, if you have, I recommend to take a pair of binoculars. You're pretty much equipped for your Antarctic expedition. Okay. Roger, what are they going to, what's it like on the island when they get there? What, what are you going to experience? Well, we'll be taking, from what I know, um, having not experienced it, but taking zodiacs um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, carefully stepping onto um, the islands and interacting with the local, even on the way there, interacting with the marine wildlife and then uh, getting on land and seeing various kinds of penguins and uh, maybe albatross, I think, on the way. But um, So this is, I, I, I think I should interject here and say, this is an expedition. This is not cocktails uh, all afternoon followed by sumptuous dinner. Uh, it's going to be comfortable. Well, it's a great, great cruise line. As I understand, there is that too. There is that too, <laughs> right? But uh, you're not going to be in the in your bathing suit. This, you know, you got to be ready for weather, and you're going to learn something. Only when you is, do the polar plunge. There you go. The polar plunge. Yes. But you're going to learn a lot. Uh, there are seats available, and you should go to your personal Milne Travel Advisor or local office, or get general information on the WDEV website at WDEVradio.com. But more on in the two minutes we have left, what are they going to, what should people expect? Well, the, the, and I'm sure Jean can, can elaborate on this, but the, the crossing the Drake Passage can be yeah. incredibly <clears throat> wavy, but they have fins in the, in the expedition ships that they're built for these kinds of things. Yeah. Or it could be a, they call it the Drake Lake. It's either the, the, the uh, Drake Shake or the great, the Drake Lake. Yeah. The lake meaning calm. That's right. Uh, you can have an area of higher pressure right over uh, head and have fantabulous conditions going oh. all the way to Antarctica. Crazy. Jean Roche, uh, in, we have one minute left. Uh, what, what should people expect? They're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah. I would like to come back on this maybe just to, Inspire because we've been talking about the technical side uh, and uh, the preparedness of the trip to Antarctica. But yes, what does it look like to be Antarctica is really the reason 
uh, why taking these trips, why getting on this expedition. And Antarctica is a place like no other. Uh, it's very hard to describe precisely, and I heard, I think it was you, Roger, who mentioned that it was more like uh, walking to the moon, and it is true that Antarctica, on many ways, looks like much more arriving to another planet rather than another continent. It is hard to uh, get prepared for the amount of ice which is dominating the landscape. It's a completely mineral continent made of black rock and white ice. Okay. There is no tree, there is we- nothing, nothing organic, but just a fantastic pure landscape, which is, however, full of wildlife. We have the to go. Impressive in- there are seats available. Call Mel Traveler Radio Vermont. You get to listen to Jean Roach's accent the entire time. That's worth the trip in itself. Thank you, Roger Hill. Thank you, Jean Roach. I've got to go. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Have a good trip. I'm jealous. 1-800-78-MIL. We are back. It's Kevin Ellis. Our Wednesday show, Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV, the friendly pioneer. And guess who we have with us? So... There's going to be a mayor's race in Burlington, and the next mayor of Burlington is going to be a woman. So get ready. Uh, regardless of who wins, uh, a woman is going to be in the mayor's office for the first time, and that's uh, that's history. Our guest is Emma Mulvaney-Stanick. She, she announced this week her candidacy for mayor of Burlington to replace the outgoing mayor, Moreau Weinberger. There will undoubtedly be others in the race. She is a state representative from Burlington. She represents the Old North End. And as I learned in reading the Seven Days article, a little piece of the New North End, which there's a lot of interesting political history there. Emma Mulvaney-Stanick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Why run for mayor of Burlington? <laughs> the million-dollar question. Well, I've lived in Burlington my almost my entire adult life. I have two small kids. I run a small business, and I'm married to a city employee, and I have been deeply concerned about the direction of our city. Uh, as a perspective from having small kids, I want a city that my kids are proud in of and that they can feel safe in, that really brings all the vibrancy and community, deep sense of community that we have had in the past, and it's all been getting unraveled from the divisiveness, from people's both felt and real sense of lack of safety. And it's time to step back into local government. I've been focused on the state level, but I feel a calling to come back to local government and offer a different leadership style, offer a different vision, and offer, frankly, the lived experience of someone raising small kids in this community who is all in and invested in what happens next. I have seen you around the state house. Uh, and I know you to be a very hard worker. You have two small children, um, and I know I'll get accused of asking this question of the woman and not the man who's sitting behind that mic. It's hard. You and I have talked about this, actually. It's very difficult. And Madeline Kunin has actually written about this back in her day. Getting your family situated, go down to Montpelier, um, Maybe there's an Obama thing here where you now you can walk to work if you win the mayor's race. But does this get easier personally on, on a family or harder? You know, we've had a lot of conversations, my wife and I, over the summer. I've been thinking about it for quite a while. 
And work-life balance is a critical piece. Um, stepping into leadership and elected leadership in particular is a wild thing these days with yeah. the, just the divisiveness out there. Yeah. Uh, and yet I found, have found in the last three years as a mom in that legislature, there are so few people who have kids under 18 in any elected office. And that's a problem. And that's I emphasize problem. that because you lose that, that perspective. You lose the urgency of understanding the affordability crisis for folks using childcare or if they can even find it. You lose the, um, the, the urgency of feeling the economics of trying to afford to stay to live here in Vermont and find housing. And um, not to minimize other people's experiences who choose not to have kids or have older kids, but it's a very different economic time right now. And so I feel, um, y- yes, it's hard to balance. And yet my kids are incredibly proud of me. My daughter stood right next to me when I made my announcement and she made little signs in her after school program. And uh, it's, it's a really important role modeling for my children that you can do this and you can do this in a healthy way as well with, you know, balances and lots of villages and support uh, to make this happen. I neglected to say to our central Vermont audience that you are from Barrie. I'm from Barrie City. Oh, <laughs> how long did you live in Barrie City? Uh, my Pretty much my whole childhood. Uh, we moved from Marshfield when I was about school age, um, and my parents still live there. Yep. It's been devastating to see what's happened with the floods and just the slow recovery for a working class town like Barrie City. But I also feel like that's part of the roots that have informed my politics. It's informed why economics and working people's issues are a major component of what I've done professionally as a labor organizer. And one of the main things I'll focus on when I become the next mayor of Burlington is affordability and workers' rights, working, workforce development issues that are facing our employers and the workforce that, that makes it all work. Uh, I, in the article I read, there were three priorities, but let's let you tick them off. There yeah. was uh, community safety, community affordability, safety. and a third. And uh, climate resilience. Okay. Right. I don't, I don't think anyone uh, can run for mayor, frankly, run for leadership in any town in Vermont right now without having community safety be the major component of a platform. It will be my first priority. I spoke a little bit earlier around how safety is uh, a critical, it's a critical fundamental, uh, fundamental need for folks to feel safe and be safe in their communities. And there's a lot of ways to get there. And that's why I use the phrase community safety, not public safety. I noticed that. That's, yeah, it's that's intentional. a new vocabulary. It's yep. intentional. Because there's so much of falls under community safety. We have to look at our substance use disorder um, crisis we have in our state. We have to look at the issues of folks who are experiencing house, uh, homelessness. We have to look at uh, the untreated mental health and the, the sort of the, the cracks around our mental health um, system. And then, of course, actual crime um, and the issues that police have a role to play in it. But it's a multifaceted, uh, complex challenge, and we have to bring stakeholders to the table. And I think that's one of the strengths I bring to this race is I've been an organizer my whole professional life. I know how to build relationships and build that trust that has really been shaken in Burlington, especially around community safety. Uh, So that's why that one's the primary uh, focus of my campaign. How have you done that, build trust and worked with others? You are a progressive, a member of the progressive party. You are the chair of the progressive caucus in the legislature. There are some who would brand you just that, a, a, a prog, and who can't work across the lines with Democrats or Republicans. Well, 
I think that's a false narrative because as we all know from both local, state and national, there are many kinds of progressives, many kinds of Democrats, many kinds of Republicans and independents. We have a governor who frankly doesn't do much with his party, but he's a proud Republican. Um, And uh, in the state house, I'm I'm one of five member caucus in a body of 150. So I both have the philosophy and the pragmatism that you get into this job and it's about compromise. That's ultimately what democracy is. And we have to put partisanship aside for the health of that democracy to make government work. And so I've been quite effective, I believe, in the State House, um, serving on the House Commerce Committee, which arguably is the most moderate committee in the House, chaired by a Republican. I've put historic pieces of policy into our workforce and economic development bills. We've passed out of that committee unanimously. I've worked in partnership to improve our broken unemployment system that so many Vermonters have been struggling to access uh, and, and put some new innovative pilot programs forward to help folks who are coming out of incarceration out of um, our prison system system, uh, into the workforce or returning to our communities and really creating uh, really important partnerships with employers to make sure they're successful. So those are all uh, progressive ideas, and we have been successful in finding a, um, a partnership in that committee to move policy forward together. You would be the first woman to be mayor of Burlington. What does that mean? It, first of all, uh, I cannot believe that we're in 2023 and there has not been a, a single woman to lead the Queen City of Vermont. Um, it is, it's also, but one has to remember that just last year we elected the first woman attorney general for the state and the first woman to send to Congress. So it's about time. And I think that women bring a very different perspective to leadership. Um, and I, I certainly think that that's what, in part, what we need in Burlington is someone who's going to bring collaboration, uh, the perspective of, of really making space for community and real, really listen to the community. And that, of course, that's not just a women's, woman's traits, my traits as leader, but I think as a woman, um, I, I want to see women in leadership and know that that's possible when I, you know, if I was growing up as a little girl, I have a great Madeline, Governor Madeline Coons, Coonan story where she was governor when I was in middle school growing up. And I really thought that women had always been governors of Vermont and I had no idea she was the first woman governor. And I made such an impression on me when I was standing outside of the Spalding graded middle school in Barrie. And uh, I truly, it inspires people to lead. It inspires people to be, think about public service as some, a profession to go into, whether it be elected or otherwise. And um, I really want to make sure that all women, also all queer people, I'm, I'm, I'm outly queer and a lesbian and know that uh, representation matters because it matters for the young people coming up behind me. Who's your political idol? Well, I, I have a few, but the two that come to mind, as I mentioned before, is Madeline Coonan. As I said, that story really um, is an important one in my upbringing of knowing that there are women who are leaders. There are women who can you know, lead an entire city in this case or the or the state in, in the case of uh, Governor Coonan. Um, Representative on, uh, um, AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is another real inspiration for me because she really leads from a values-based place. She's not there to build any parties. Uh, she's not there to get, get into the, the weeds and the traps of partisanship, which I think is, again, such a critical part that we need in Burlington's race this time, is to really put that aside. Burlington deserves so much better than infighting between parties. And I think ranked choice voting, which will be the first time we've used that for the mayor's race, uh, requires people to step away from that partisanship and really appeal to folks who don't have party affiliation as the in front of mind and talk to the issues that are facing Burlington. Because uh, anything other than that, it creates the toxicity that has really uh, not worked and it needs to be changed. Let's talk about some mechanics. There will be a progressive 
caucus. That's how this works. The Democrats will caucus. I guess the Republicans will caucus for what that's worth. There are no Republicans on the city council at the moment, correct? Correct. Yeah. Uh, so when is the progressive caucus? So that will be probably in early December. It hasn't been scheduled yet. Okay. The Republicans will caucus November 4th, I believe, and the Democrats December 10th. And they will pick their candidates mm-hmm. and you will run and the election is March 5th. 5th. Okay. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. And it will be a ranked choice voting election. Yes. So the city has actually had ranked choice voting for the last couple years for city council and then now has all up and down the ballot for school commissioner, mayor, et cetera, ranked choice, uh, ranked choice voting. So all different levels of the ballot. We also have all resident voting for the first time. So this has been a, a voting mechanism allowed uh, voting rights uh, allowed in Winooski and Montpelier and Burlington and will now be the third town in Vermont to include that. So regardless of citizenship, people can vote in this local election for the first time. I think it's important to say that as a progressive, you are the inheritor of the Bernie Sanders mantle or the Peter Clavel mantle. Um, how do you see that as well? well? I know things sure. have changed <laughs> dramatically since those guys were around, but right. Peter's still around. Hell, Bernie's still around, but being a progressive is different today than it was. Right. And actually, funny enough, both of them are my constituents in my district back in Burlington. It's a small, small world. Uh, I've door knocked both of their houses. Um, so I have great respect for, frankly, anyone who's who has served in any elected role. It, it is a hard job. It is a hard job to uh, serve as certainly mayor of a large city like Burlington. And each one of them faced different challenges when in the different decades that they were leading the city. But in 2023, we have such different challenges facing Burlington, the state and the country for that matter, that requires, um, I think, a different a looking forward vision, one that also can bring someone who has the experience like I do of knowing how the state uh, functions and the ability to kind of uh, to leverage and bring the state to the table more to help solve some of these larger issues that are larger than Burlington, like substance use disorder, um, the housing crisis, which includes those who have um, no access to stable and affordable housing, uh, and as well as just our, our general health care system. I don't think Burlington has done a good job uh, in recent years of leveraging that as a state legislator in the building. I don't think we've leveraged the asset of having 10 House members and six senators representing the biggest city. And that is that, that was disappointing to see. And I know I can do a, a whole lot better by understanding that system and the relationships I have in that building. Uh, I know people who will not walk through City Hall Park. <clears throat> Um, whether that is perception or uh, reality, it almost doesn't matter. If people are not walking through City Hall Park, it's a problem, whether they are tourists or residents or or uh, people from Montpelier going up for the day. How do you deal with that? Well, uh, it is very important for people to not only be safe, but to feel safe. And I think there's a felt sense of, of a lack of safety there. Um, it's also, there's a lot of people suffering literally in the streets in, in Burlington right now, um, openly using drugs, caught again in the substance use disorder cycle, uh, folks who are, who are visibly unhoused on the sides of the street. And that is because I think of a failure of uh, the state to be able to find an effective off ramp of the motel uh, emergency housing program, the GA emergency housing program, which I know you and I have talked about before. Uh, 
And so there's a lot of, of failures of our larger systems that have led to people openly suffering in the streets. And that can make anyone feel unsafe. And those people themselves are unsafe. So we have to look at the root causes. And we also have to understand um, when there is uh, issues that are related to crime, people are also having cars broken into, car thefts, etc., um, that there is a role for police. And when we uh, when people call for help, the expectation needs to be that people have a response, an appropriate response. And that will certainly be a big piece of my community safety platform. Police, I want to be clear, police have a role in my community safety um, platform. It needs to be appropriate. They're not social workers. Um, and it needs to be right sized to the city of Burlington, which we now have a lot of evidence to look at to inform that. But I'm also going to expect a culture within any city department that's one of, of collaboration and service to the community and one where um, we can collectively figure out how to use all of our assets to increase enforcement, which means visibility, which means more community-based response and finding solutions together, because there's not one entity that's going to solve the issues of this felt sense and real sense of a lack of safety in Burlington. This is not a cheap question. I, I mean it, which is, should the police department grow or shrink or stay the same, and does Chief Murad stay under a Mulvaney-Stanek mayoralty? Not that you have the power to immediately hire or fire, but... Well, Tell it's a big, more. it's a big question. And as I said before, we need to right size it and right size it also means make sure we have, uh, street patrol in the right numbers and, uh, the management in the right numbers, et cetera. But we also need to couple that with some programs that haven't been, um, lifted up yet or, or implemented yet fully, um, which includes an appropriate response team for folks experiencing overdoses, an appropriate response team that builds out the cahoots model, which folks might have heard about. It's a model that started on the West Coast that hasn't actually started yet. In Burlington, which would be a larger response team that's not with um, uh, police officers to respond to mental health crises and other things happening on the streets with the appropriate professionals, social workers, medical professionals, etc. Um, and so that is part of the overall community safety response that we need. And so I need we need appropriate um, staffing in those other areas as well. And to me, that's part of, the, of a broader a broader piece. And in terms of department heads, it's, you know, that's a decision uh, when and if I'm elected to mayor. But as I said before, I will have clear expectations around the culture of, of the departments under those um, department heads leadership. I also have an expectation that people have a community centered approach and not be divisive. That is damaging. It has damaged our city. And anyone leading with that kind of uh, mentality and, and approach uh, may not have a place in align with my vision for the city. But Again, that goes across the board. Um, we really need community builders in our department head. Do you support the Champlain Parkway as currently envisioned? It's like the 50-year-old question. When I was on city council many years ago, it was like, you know, version 2.5, I don't know, 5.0 right. at that point. Uh, you know, but they're they, building it. They are building it. There's, this is part of the, the reality of passing the baton between any administration, right? There are many projects that are – the train has well left the station. That one is probably one of them. Yep. I think, though, we still have a lot of to really understand the impact of the immediate communities. There's a lot of working-class communities where parts of this road are going to dump out to. And so I think we need to always think about quality of life environment, health, et cetera. And I'm not sure those communities have been fully engaged as they should be. What do you do? You walk into that office where I've been many times actually. And uh, what do you do? What's your first staff meeting? Um, who's in it? What are the issues? What's the agenda? You've, you've given your acceptance speech uh, and now you've got to get down to, to the real work. What's the agenda of that first day? Hmm. 
That's a great question, Kevin. I, I think one of the first things I know I will be within the first month at least is implementing a special assistant or some high level reporting directly to the mayor position to oversee this community safety piece to, to start immediately understanding where are we a status check and then where do we need to be so that that becomes again the primary focus of not maybe day one, but like month one uh, to really start implementing that f- and show how important that is for the health of Burlington. And I think in terms of the other pieces that are very important and this goes back to when I was on city council. I want a strong, healthy relationship with city council. The division between the mayor's office and council is, again, something that's made government not work for the people. And so partisanship aside, I want to set that tone and invite city councilors into those um, early meetings that first month, I will say. Um, and also acknowledge I've been in these roles as city council and state legislator. Those folks have usually other work that they do to make uh, ends meet. They don't have staff. They don't have the expertise that a mayor's office can leverage within departments and their own staff. And so I really want to see that as a partnership and set that tone from day one. You'll be running against a Democrat. They have in 30 seconds, uh, there's, there will be a Democrat in this race, no doubt. What makes you different? I think truly my strength of being an organizer, knowing how to convene people, listen to people and respond to what they're saying. And then the role of being a state legislator, This I have a real strength now of understanding those partnerships and how to leverage that in Montpelier. And I don't see anyone yet who can, still, can bring that same level of leadership experience and dedication. Okay. Emma Mulvaney Stanek, progressive candidate for mayor of Burlington. She is live in the studio. She's from Barry City, everybody but uh, a proud resident of the old North End in Burlington, and we're grateful. Uh, please come back. I will. Thank okay. you. Okay, yeah. We're going to take a break, and we're coming back with a guest from Gaza, and we're going to take this issue on, and we're going to do it with the usual uh, commandment, which is listen first. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Mm-hmm. 